You're listening to Ed Curation, the podcast where teachers talk curriculum. We make it easier for educators to find the resources they need to create fresh, lively, and authentic learning. Welcome to another edition of Ed Curation, where teachers talk curriculum, and I'm excited today to have Emily Fields with me, seventh grade language arts teacher from Crest Hill Middle School in Douglas County, Colorado. Welcome, Emily. Thank you so much. So tell us a little bit about your role as a teacher. Tell us a little bit more about Crest Hill Middle School in Douglas County and the the student population that you work with. All right. Well, Crest Hill Middle School is the middle school that feeds solely into Highlands Ranch High School. And we are university and county line kind of in the heart of Highlands Ranch, the, the oldest Highlands Ranch neighborhoods. We have more of a diverse population now. I used to work at Westminster High School in Adams 50. I worked there for seven years and then moved over here. And so this is my 20th year here. Crest Hill is what I like to call the parent, tell the parents and the kids. It's like the Disney world of, of middle schools. And I know that's kind of funny, kind of hard to wrap your head around because many people don't really recall middle school as the best time in their life. But for these kids, I truly believe that what we're trying to give them is that best time in their life wonderful teachers. We really put our connections with the kids first. And for me, I try to personalize every kid's opportunity to have their own education here at Crest Hill. Wow. So it sounds like you are really passionate about the work you do. What do you love about teaching? I love the students. That's the most important. I definitely have had leadership opportunities over the years and have worked with adults as well. And it is fun as well, but I really love just working with the kids. They keep me energized. They make me laugh all day. I mean, I get to work with 12-year-olds all day. So finding that connection with them, getting them jazzed about what they're doing in class, allowing them to see connections to their own life, just really trying to be that person for them during this kind of really awkward stage in their life is super important to me. That's great. I've had friends say to me, if I ever don't love it, I don't want to do it anymore. And then people, you know, fortunately they leave or, or some people don't leave and they don't love it anymore. But you, you have been teaching for a while and you still love it. It's so heartening to hear. So you are here today to talk to us about Socratic Seminar. Tell us about Socratic Seminar for our listeners that maybe have heard of it or, you know, are curious and don't exactly know what it is and and how it works. Sure. Everybody hopefully knows Socrates, you know, classical Greek philosopher. And the Socratic method of teaching is based on the theory that it's more important to enable students to think for themselves than to merely fill their heads with the right answers. So it's a discussion forum. It's a discussion protocol. However, for me and for many educators, it's based on critical reading and writing. So the discussion is definitely a part of it where you want to train the students how to discuss and have an organic dialogue with their peers, which is really difficult at any age, but it really is based on critical reading and writing skills first. Okay. So how did you first learn about Socratic Seminar or when did you first begin using it? So back when I taught at Westminster High School, Westie was a school that, that had an AVID program when I was there, AVID, if you're not familiar. I 
I think that's achievement via individual determination. I think that's what it stands for. And a lot of the times those types of programs have a certain protocol of curriculum that they they have to have in those programs. And so Socratic seminar was one of those curriculums. And so I, although I wasn't an avid teacher, an avid elective teacher, we used avid strategies in our classes at all times. So I remember getting PD on it, professional development on it pretty early on, but it's really for me evolved over the years. It started off for me probably as more of a discussion-based kind of training the students how to talk and maybe use one text to have a discussion. But now it's really a means for my students to prepare a lot of the times for their final essays in my class, really to wrap their head around what they're reading, grabbing textual evidence, using the graphic organizers that I designed for them to bring into a Socratic seminar, and then also have that that cherry on top, which is the discussion. So for me, it's evolved into something beyond what it used, what it was initially. Yeah, so I was a, an English teacher in both middle and high school, and we called them interpretive discussions. I think coming at more out of kind of the great books tradition. So for our listeners who aren't familiar with Socratic seminar specifically, how often do you use it? I know you say that it's really about the discussion is the cherry on top, but it's really a strategy for teaching critical reading and writing and allowing students voice and encouraging their own thinking and discussion. But how do you plan for a Socratic seminar? And then how often do you do these? And how does it work in your classroom? Okay, so a lot of different ways to answer that. Well, first of all, you know, I have different types of learners in my classroom. I have, I know a lot of students who are on current read plans, and they have a lot of students who are reading at, you know, a very late high school level. So, and so I teach different types of classes. I teach advanced classes and regular classes. Last year, I taught a class geared for read students. So first, it's important to know, obviously, your students to know what they can do and how much you want to push them. So I tend to do Socratic seminars twice a quarter. The first time I do it is what we would call a work habits grade. My school has both work habits and content knowledge grades. The work habits grade comes first five to six weeks of learning how to do a Socratic seminar. And after that, when they've become more proficient, then I have a content grade attached to it. It's a lot about training your students how to do this before really believing that they're proficient enough to show you what they can do. Most of my Socratic seminars start with pieces of literature that are linked to our essential questions for the quarter. So everything that we read about and that we write about in our classes is linked to essential questions. So for instance, growing up with courage and the gift of struggle is our theme for quarter one with our essential question, how do life experiences and conflicts help us grow and become more confident and courageous? So what I do is I offer the students a multiple array of literature to read, nonfiction as well as fiction. They break those down through the quarter and they build these graphic organizers where they have to answer questions related to either the essential question or questions related to the actual literature or connections with other pieces of literature. And then the students gather textual evidence and explain, gather textual evidence and explain and continue to 
connect those to the other essential questions and bring this graphic organizer into the class to use as a piece to always go back to when they're, they are starting that Socratic seminar discussion. That sounds really exciting. Everything you just described, I mean, being a former English teacher myself, I really understand and appreciate the way that you have the essential questions. You have multiple pieces of text. It sounds like students have some choice in there about what they read, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, they're probably leveled texts, and that they really use the reading and the writing to gather the evidence that they'll be talking about in the Socratic seminar. It allows them to wrap their head around really what they're trying to say. And eventually the information that they are presenting in the Socratic seminar shows up in their final expository essays as well. So it's important that they have some merit behind what they want to try to persuade and what they want to argue in their eventual essay. So why not have them try it out using dialogue first and Mm -hmm. try to help them you know, really stand behind what they're trying to prove eventually. And so what would we see if we were to observe a Socratic seminar happening in your classroom? So my classroom is set up, I'm sitting in it right now, and I have just tables all around an array of circles and squares, and I'm sitting at a kidney table right now. And in the middle of my room is this huge space. So my room is really discussion-based anyway. Anytime I say circle up, the kids bring their chairs and just bring it in the circle anyway. So that's kind of like the vibe in my classroom. But in a Socratic seminar, there is an outer circle and then there's an inner circle. And so usually the inner circle for me, I pull it, I, I pull a table in. It's just for me having that kind of that nice conference table for those kids as opposed to just having them sit with their materials because they have materials in front of them. They have this graphic organizer. Some of them, actually, they bring the articles that they've annotated. They bring some of the books that they have the sticky notes in. And so if they, you know, they're supposed to write everything on their graphic organizer, but sometimes a question is posed where they are actually digging into something that they have in front of them, a piece of material that they are going to reference, you know, because they're so they're familiar enough with it. So there's an inner circle that is doing all of the conversation. And then there's something called a hot seat. And the hot seat is where anybody from the outer circle who has a different role, I'll explain that in a minute, anybody from the outer circle, if they want to get involved, if they feel like that drive or that passion to get involved and and say something, then they can go to the hot seat, have their moments in the hot seat, get involved, and then take their seat back on the outer circle. And I time it. You have to time it or you, or you kind of, you know, you facilitate when the conversation needs to shift. And then you invite, you know, the next group of, you know, five to seven students in. I have small classes this year. I have 18 to 25 kids in my classes, which is really nice. So it's interesting having kind of smaller groups on the inside and smaller groups on the outside. So you just have to kind of gauge and and be aware of which kids should go in. You want to make sure that there's a, a mix of kids who are maybe reserved and maybe social. You don't want all the outgoing kids in at the same time. So you really kind of have to know your audience as well. So you have a general question that they're going to be discussing that day, or does it evolve throughout the conversation? Right. So I start with the question. So I think the the biggest thing for teachers who are just getting started is, you know, the teacher, as a veteran teacher, I've been doing this for a long time. And as a veteran teacher, I'm much better at it now. But 
when I first started, it was very hard to just be a facilitator, right? Instead of a teacher, instead of getting involved, instead of them talking to me, they have to learn to talk to themselves. Oftentimes I find myself telling them, don't look at me. You know, you're having a conversation with your, with your peers in the group. You're not proving anything to me. This should be an authentic conversation. And so the question, I pose the first question, but a lot of the times there are secondary questions that just come up authentically. A lot of times that happens more easily with my advanced students. With my some of my other students, it's sometimes harder. So I do have to push some questions in. But really, it's the students having, having the dialogue. And I'm just f- trying to facilitate and navigate them through that. So you say you time these. Do you time them so that all 20 or so students in your class have a chance to participate in one class period? Or do you, is it more kind of random about who participates and who doesn't each day? So that's a great question. And that's an important question because part of the grading for this and the grading comes with the amount of times a student gets involved. The grading comes with the amount of time a student (laughs) or how the student gets involved. For instance, there's so many great resources online, but you want to make sure that Every student is speaking during the discussion, looking at people who are speaking, referring to the text, referring to the graphic organizer, posing a question, responding to another speaker. Some students have a hard time being active listeners and they just want to talk the whole time. That's a very hard skill to teach students. You don't want any students, whether they're on the outside or inside circle, to engage on inside conversations. So in terms of the timing, I suppose I mean... I would generally do this on a block day. So it's an hour and hour and 50 minutes. We, take, we would take a five-minute break. We would prepare. Usually that would work. If, if not a block day, I would have to do it over two regular school days in order to make sure that I'm giving everybody an opportunity to get in there and actually have some sort of contribution, whether they get to the hot seat or they are in a part of the circle. So do these conversations run for about 15 minutes or how long do they run? That's a good question. Maybe 15 minutes might be too long, you know, so maybe, I don't know, eight to 10 minutes. It really depends. I would say starting with eight to 10 minutes and then rotating through, but really it sometimes depends on what you're seeing happen in the circle. They may be having a phenomenal conversation that's still on target. Mm -hmm. That's not completely off subjects and off topic that may run a little more. You just have to, as a teacher, part of you being a facilitator is gauging the outer circle and the inner circle, you know, watching the students' physical movements. If they start to kind of, you know, shake in their seats a little bit or get a little uncomfortable or, you know, they're kind of over the conversation, then it might be time to get a new group in there, freshen it up a little bit. Just like teachers know when they're talking too much and their students need to work, you just have to kind of be aware of your students. That's why I say to any new teacher trying this out, all you can do is try to watch them. I would say the best thing to do if you're interested in doing this is go watch a couple people do this, and then you'll kind of get a sense of where you as a teacher, where your strengths will be and how you want to mirror what you saw. But a lot of it is trial and error. And, and really, the students are going to get something from this regardless. 
it's trial and error for them too. They're going to become better at this as they do it more and more. That's why by third, fourth quarter, it kind of becomes second nature for them to know. So maybe we do more than maybe we do more than two during a quarter, or maybe we do it based on a couple things we read. And I just feel like I want the kids to dig a little deeper into it. I would imagine that another important component to having a successful Socratic seminar would be the way that you train the students and kind of prepare them to be successful. Can you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So as I said before, all of the students are coming in with what I call a Socratic seminar entrance ticket. So right away, they get a work habits grade for coming in and having that done. And they've been working on that, like in class all week. So to give you kind of a like a parallel, it would be like students reading a book and grabbing textual evidence based on a number of questions throughout the book, as opposed to finishing the book and having to go back and gather all their textual evidence. That, I do not teach like that at all. I teach, I want my students to get into their text. Once they hit a point where I feel like they're, they're into it, that's when I want them to start to gather textual evidence and, and build for the summative assessment. Socratic seminar would be what I would call a lot of the time a summative assessment, especially if you're using it for multiple texts to eventually build an essay. So that would be, that is 100% prep work for the students that I'm involved in from the get-go. Another thing is to start to talk to them about what active listening looks like train them on some of the sentence starters. I have a big rolling whiteboard in my room. So when they're doing a Socratic seminar, I write down or I type out and then print out a poster of a ton of kind of, if you're stuck with what to do next, turn to the whiteboard and take one of these sentence starters. It will help you. Some examples would be Can you propose an alternative way of saying that? What is the significance of this? What evidence is there that could prove that? Just making sure that you're having a lot of different ways to re-question what students are trying to answer. I'm glad that you mentioned the sentence starters and teaching the outside, the students that are, when they're in the outside circle about active listening, that seems like some really great strategies to use to ensure success and this entrance ticket. So is the entrance ticket essentially their notes about the textual evidence related to the unit question, the essential question? Yes, absolutely. That's how I've done it in the past, but there's a lot of different ways you, you can do it. I've had students come in with like a more scaffolded version where they're coming in with an actual, what's called a wrap response, restate and then add textual evidence and then prove it. So they're coming with smaller, kind of easier to navigate through Socratic seminar entrance tickets. I have my advanced kids a lot of the time write open-ended questions based on texts that they've read. So they're coming in with questions that they're going to be able to pose. So it just depends on what the takeaway is for that particular assessment and where the, where the students are at. That's when it gets exciting is when they start making their own questions. and Right. Things. Right. I would agree. You know, because I teach an advanced class and I have, you know, some students who have had this type of a discussion-based classroom before, I had a student say, 
Mrs. Fields, are we, are we going to stop using the, you know, sentence starters or are we going to stop raising our hands? I think she said at the third day, the third day of class, are we going to be raising our hands the entire time that we're in this class? And I said, no, Eugene, absolutely not, you know, but there's some training that needs to happen. You may have had it at your other school. I don't know. I've just met you, <laughs> but I have to make sure that the students feel comfortable enough and you know, that I'm training them, giving them the proper tools before I kind of let them loose. We have a cold call, a cold call philosophy at my school anyway. Every classroom that you go into, the philosophy is any teacher at any time is just going to call on any kid to get involved in the school discussion or the, the classroom discussion, want to make sure that these kids are always engaged. So the kids at my school, for the most part, kind of get that anyway in all of their classes, which, which really helps with you know, naturally progressing to a discussion-based classroom. It sounds like an exciting place to be. So tell our listeners what you have been able to achieve using Socratic seminars with your students that you don't think you would have been able to achieve or your students wouldn't have been able to achieve without Socratic seminar? You know, I think the most important thing in a classroom for me is the community. I want my students to become better readers and writers, but I certainly need them to feel a sense of community and a warm and open and safe climate in my classroom. So I would say making sure that I'm you know, allowing that to happen through through these discussion protocols, that's very, very important to me. In terms of literacy, the depth and the dive that they can they can get from what they are reading, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, a book that we've been reading for a few weeks or just a quick article that you know I, I just decided to to throw into the mix. And then really the the writing component and finding that support and that textual evidence to really back up what you what you have to say what you believe in because that's the core of writing here in terms of expository writing we focus a lot on expository writing in 7th grade they come in this is a 7th and 8th grade only middle school so they're coming in from elementary school doing some expository writing, a ton of creative writing still, which is, you know, gets them jazzed about writing and that's great, but I need to bring them back to a level of them really trying to use that support in their writing to back up what they believe in. So, you know, I think there's so many, there's been so many opportunities for growth for my students, whether it's using a discussion protocol for a really quiet student is super helpful because that student needs those questions. That student needs those sentence starters and they will become better at the end. Somebody who was very nervous to do this in the beginning of the year is much, much better at it at the end of the year. And Emily, do the students like it? Yeah, I I believe they like it. Overall, so I mean, over the last years, they've liked it and they've felt prepared. I think the ones who feel prepared are the ones who come in ready to rock it. And I will know who those students are through the weeks of them working on their graphic organizer. But generally, seventh graders like to hear themselves talk. Seventh graders like to talk to each other. Seventh graders like guidance when and, and knowing expectations for you know, a challenging activity like this. They also like to mix things up a little bit in their daily routine. So this is not something that you do every day. They also like to show that what they know. They they like to show when they are prepared. So, and I taught eighth grade as well. And I would say the same thing for eighth graders. 
I think it's a great tool. I think they do like it. I also think it's nice if they see a Socratic seminar in their language arts class, and then they can do the, a Socratic seminar in their social studies class. And maybe the social studies teacher does it a little differently, but they still kind of get the gist of it. I think that's pretty cool, seeing the interdisciplinary connection. For sure. And then students are just learning how to do, how to engage in academic discussions, which is essential all the way through their academic careers. And the fact that they're learning it and learning how to more rigorously close read texts in seventh grade, it's just so exciting. So what teachers would you recommend check this out? I think this would work in any class. I actually think it would work in any class. I almost said not math because I can't wrap my head around that because I don't I don't math very well, but you know, if there's a math concept that the teachers want the students to kind of wrap their head around a little bit, then maybe it would work. But really, any class, I could see this working in a social studies class. We have our wellness class that you know was built around a lot of like the pillars of the student's character. You know, so there's so many ways for students to also make like personal connections. You can also bring it. You know, you want to bring in some personal connections into these discussions as well. Part of being a a smart reader is being able to make those personal connections. Social studies, science, really anyone, an art class, that could be really cool, like culinary arts class, which is uh, like a home ec class. So I could see this working in any sort of class. I don't think it needs to happen in a literature class, especially with, you know, our new standards are so literacy-based. It's literacy first. You're reading like a scientist. You're reading like a social studies student. You're reading like a you know, a mathematician. So there's a lot of literacy at the forefront of our new standards here at 2019, 2020. So why not try a Socratic seminar on on top of the reading that you're going to be doing in your class anyway? Well, Emily, it has been so exciting to talk to you today and hear about how you are using Socratic seminar with your seventh grade language arts students at Crest Hill Middle School in Douglas County. I feel very inspired about these middle school students' academic path ahead of them based on everything that they're learning in your class. So thank you so much for sharing it with us and inspiring our listeners, hopefully, to to check out Socratic Seminar and to implement it in their classrooms if they're not already. It's certainly a a more student-centered, engaging way to learn. Thank you so much for sharing that with us today. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Ed Curation. We hope you learned something today about a curriculum resource that produces fresh, lively, and authentic learning. Check out edcuration.com to find out more. That's E-D-C-U-R-A-T-I-O-N.com.